Aloha and welcome to Stan Energy Man here on Think Tech Hawaii. Stan Osterman coming to you live and direct from Kailua, Hawaii. And uh, still, weather's weather's getting nicer. You got to plan your trip out this way and bring some cash with you or credit card. We take credit cards here in Hawaii too. But uh, right behind me, you see a beautiful sunset uh, off of Waikiki Beach. All the three-man canoes out by Outrigger Canoe Club ready to go surfing. And uh, summertime is coming, so the surf will be coming up on this shoreline. Anyway, back to energy, not just surf energy, but real energy. Um, I've got a, a recurring guest, Dan Goen, who's uh, with me today to talk about kind of the, the real world, not necessarily very positive energy news coming across the wires that uh, translate into economic news as well. As, as you probably guessed from watching the news in the newspapers, you know, we have inflation, uh, people are calling it different things for different reasons, but basically, this is not a short-term deal. This is kind of a, a movement that we predict is going to keep pressing, mostly because of the energy um, uh, supply-demand energy side, where the supply is being shorted on our side and demand is high over in Europe and everybody's buying oil from Russia and it doesn't all work. But Dan's going to clue us in on how all that fits together and tie the energy to the economy. So Dan, welcome back. Um, I love having you on. I, I think we, we could probably start our own two-man show here after a while. We're, we're, you and I are gonna have to do that, by the way. <laughs> you know, we'll but, have to uh, see if, if Jay will cut us loose from ThinkTech and, and let us do that, have our own, <laughs> call it Stan and Dan the Energy Man or something like that, that I, it, I think I think that's something you and I really need to consider doing. <laughs> So, okay, well, bring us up to speed. I haven't really, I mean, I've been getting sure. your texts and emails and stuff, but I haven't been uh, getting into deep dives like you do on uh, what's going on with all the energy. Sure. So so what we're going to talk about today, we're, we are going to talk about the energy markets, but uh, we're going to talk about a new financial system. And it's a new financial system where I'm going to, I'm going to describe to you that probably about half the world's population, either they're currently trading in or, or will be uh, trading in this new system and unfortunately it is not a dollar-based system right? yeah can you can you kind of highlight that um you know we talked yeah. about the petrodollar and the u.s dollar being the reserve currency of the world basically you can take dollars almost anywhere and buy anything but uh you know most people need to understand the relationship there as we start into this discussion because it does make the tie between dollars and oil and natural gas and other commodities for that matter well, well, when I get to the end of this presentation, I'm actually going to give you an example of how to how to uh, buy commodities, right, um, and how they'll end up being priced in these other currencies and how that whole system works. But currently, right now, the world's commodity markets, whether you're buying oil or natural gas or gasoline or pork bellies or wheat or corn or copper, whatever, all that is denominated in dollars. So for example, copper, that'd be metric tons of copper is denominated in dollars. Oils in, in barrels of oil, or wheat is in, is in bushels of wheat. Uh, corn is in bushels of wheat. Uh, cows are denominated in dollars. Or uh, the, new, the new clean tech, new high tech is, is, uh, is hogs. You know, that's one of, the, one of the jokes out there. Uh, but basically all those commodities are denominated in dollars. So if, you're, if you're in the international community and you want to buy and sell uh, any of those commodities, you're translated from your local currency into dollars and the dollars into another currency, right? So there's an entirely new trading system out there. And we're going to go uh, kind of a deep dive into how that whole system works. And at the very end, I'm going to give you an example 
for example, of how a, an oil, a Russian oil businessman would be selling oil to a businessman in India, right? And how that translates from Russian barrels of oil and eventually it'll be paid for in rupees and how that whole thing works. Can I get Great. the first slide, please? Okay, that's just, uh, I'm putting that up there for the company just to make sure I get a good pitch out there for electron power and technology. Uh, second slide, please. Okay. So what that there is, that there talks about uh, Russian rubles for natural gas. Now uh, that's the amount of gas uh, that's in uh, that's in billions of cubic meters per day. So the Russians are producing 24 billion cubic meters of gas per day. Understand that's for a pipeline system going into Europe. The United States, we only uh, provide an excess of only eight billion cubic meters of gas per day. Now. Uh, the Russians, uh, per year, they pump 8.7 trillion cubic meters of gas into Europe every year. The United States, we only produce 2.9 trillion cubic meters of gas every year. 2 trillion cubic meters of gas gets turned into liquefied natural gas in Central Europe. Uh, 870 billion cubic meters of gas turned into LNG and sent to Japan and Korea. Okay, so what I'm talking about there is we're trying to replace Russian gas with American gas. We're going to have a very hard time of doing. Uh, for example, right now they're talking about building two liquefied natural gas terminals in Germany, so that way they can receive ships with LNG on it. Those two uh, uh, facilities basically they offload liquefied natural gas. They allow the gas to heat up and turn back into gas to feed into the gas system there there in Europe. But those two facilities only have a combined capacity of 6 billion cubic meters per year. So wow. we're nowhere even close to even be able to supply uh, Europe with enough liquefied natural gas to replace Russia. Yeah, I have a quick question for you. You know, you talked about Germany and maybe some other places in Europe uh, building ports that can receive natural gas, liquid natural gas. But it, if I'm not mistaken, the U.S. actually didn't have any any ports a few years ago, maybe eight or 10 years ago, didn't have that many places they could export natural gas from. Yeah. We built those terminals within the last eight, last eight or 10, 10 years. years. Yeah. yeah. And it's okay. because the shale gas boom is why those okay. came online. And even then, they're only exporting, like I said, uh, we're exporting about eight, eight billion, uh, eight billion uh, cubic meters of gas per day. But, right? the, but, but Europe, Europe is pulling most of theirs from. Soviet Union from Russia and and uh, in the North Sea and some yeah, other and all the pipeline. We talk about the North Sea being in terminal decline. So yeah, this They've is only good. And on top of that, those two new LNG terminals, receiving terminals, are in Germany. It's going to take them two to three years to build them. Wow. So if the Russians turned off the gas right now, Europe is really going to be hurt. Um, now, how now? For example, right now, so so Russia announced that start April first that the Europeans have to pay rubles. Uh, for their for their gas, and they're going to extend that into all the other commodities that per, that they provide, and not all the way down to uranium, timber, uranium, uh, platinum, gold, silver, etc. Right now, how the Russians are now understand? So April first is when they have to start paying for in rubles. Now the bills come due at the end of April, and what the Russian government is saying, there's something called Gazprom Bank. Gazprom apparently has their own bank. 
and all the uh, members of the European Union have to set up accounts in Gazprom and they can pay their dollars and euros into those accounts and those will get converted into rubles. And that's basically the Russian government basically putting a good legal foot forward to settle this problem. And of course, all the European nations are vowing that they're never gonna pay for their gas in rubles. And the Russians are vowing, if you don't pay for your gas, we're just gonna turn it off. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll wait to the end of April. We'll see how it plays out. We'll see We'll see who flinches from uh, from the game of chicken. Okay. okay. Yeah, next, uh, next page please. Okay, Russia has no dollars in reserves. So two years ago, the Russian government de-dollarized. Uh, they don't have any uh, government bonds. The $630 billion worth of funds that the uh, Biden administration froze was actually the currencies for uh, Russian companies like Gazprom and Nesprov and all these companies that do business in Russia. So they didn't really affect the Russian government because the Russian government has no dollar reserves and hasn't had any dollar reserves for, for probably the last two years. They pretty much de-dollarized. Um, let's see, oh, the other thing that happened too last week, March 28, 2022, Russia pegged the ruble to gold. So it's 5,000 rubles to one gram of gold. Uh, that's gonna become a very important detail when we go forward and I show you how this new currency system is set up. And that, that's important. I know you'll explain it later, but that's important um, because it, if their economy isn't really great, like they don't have the greatest economy on the planet right now, the gold gives it a lot of stability. It gives their currency yeah. a lot of stability. Well, what, what everybody doesn't realize is there's something called the Bureau of International Settlements. That's in Basel, Basel, Switzerland. And they set all the rules and standards for all the banks in the world, right? And for banks, when banks have loan portfolios, they have to have an, a certain amount of reserves relative to their loans, right? Right. And ever since the 2008 financial crisis, uh, what happened was the United States government, our bonds went from AAA down to AA. So we've lost some credit rating, US government bonds. Because of that, all the world's banks readjusted their reserve requirements. So what they did is they put number one on this list of seven items you can use for reserves for your bank. The number one item on that list right now happens to be gold bullion. And because of that, all the world's central banks, they went to the federal, uh, the New York Fed and they took all their gold back. So for example, back in 2015, 2016, there was kind of a semi mini scandal. And what that had to do with Germany requested all their gold bullion back from the New York Fed. And it took them like 18 months to finally send their gold back to Germany. And it caused Angela Merkel a lot of headaches because Basically, the Rostag, the, 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 the members of their parliament were very nervous about our financial stability. And you're going to find that that detail about our financial stability here in the United States is, is actually something playing around the world. There's a lot of world central banks that are kind of scary about our debt levels and our banking system. I, I wish that weren't true, but, but it is. I know. Well, they're not the only ones scared. Okay, so the other thing is, is Russia has the second and third largest gold mines in the world. The Chinese have number four and number five mines in the world. Okay, that's kind of important detail. Um, Now, how the Russians are going to be able to maintain the peg of the ruble to the gold, that's 5,000 rubles to one gram of gold. How they maintain the peg is simply this. If the value of the ruble goes down, 
what they do is they stop the flow of gold into the market and that causes the ruble to come up in value. Uh, when the Russian value of the Russian ruble goes up too high, what they do is they flood the gold market with gold and that brings the value of the ruble down. Because the Russians are providing, like I said, second and third largest gold mines in the world, they actually have a lot of control over the world's gold market. And hey. since that's number one reserve asset for all the banks on the planet, they actually have a lot of control over the world's money. How, how would that, how would that re relate to the Fed and U.S. dollars in terms of balancing their currency? Our, 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 our money is not backed by anything. You know that. Right. So, so basically, they're they're balancing or they're they're protecting their money using their gold resources, um, and it's it's actually even more secure than U.S. currency in some ways. There's something in in currencies uh, what we, in securities what we call two party money and three party money. Three party money is where Stan and I and a third party can say something has value. For example, Stan and I could trade like say U.S. government bond. Okay, and Stan and I can agree it has money. But let's say something happens to the issuer of that bond, then that bond could go to zero. When it comes to something like gold bullion, Stan and I can agree it has value. I don't need a third party to tell me gold has value. Stan and I can agree it has value. It's a rare substance, 99% pure. It's, on a, uh, it's set by troy ounces. It's set by the, the, the BIS, which is the Bureau of International Settlements, the central bank of central bank. I can take it anywhere on the planet and any bank in the planet will redeem my goal and considers it as good for paying all debts, public and private. I don't have to have a question. So if I don't have that issue with banks, I'm pretty sure Stan and I could trade a gold coin. Stan will agree that my gold coin has value. I can agree that his, his coin has gold value. And, and it make, it's a very convenient form of trade because there's no counterparty risk involved versus like a bond or a, or a stock or something like that. There's always counterparty risk because somebody could do some shenanigans, default on some debt or something, you know, and that's just, just the world we live in. Okay. Uh, next one, please. Okay. What that is, uh, China and uh, and Russia have this new gas pipeline system. It's called the Power of Siberia. Um, what I wanted to show you there is, uh, if you can see all those red squiggles there, those are all the existing pipeline systems. That box there is where the new pipeline systems that they're constructing right now and should be finished by like 2023. They also noticed that even India has extensive energy infrastructure with China. So the energy infrastructure goes from Russia down into China. China has extensive oil and gas fields of their own. And a lot of, notice a lot of those pipelines actually snake over into India. Uh, I just want to make sure everybody understands that, uh, that in, contrary to the population, the public may have this impression that India and China kind of ruffle up against each other's feathers. But when you look at this way, you kind of realize these guys are sharing energy infrastructure. So there right. really can't be that much political going back and forth between these two countries. Yeah, they have border skirmishes from time to time, but that's more territorial than economic. And I think it's probably more show than anything. Yeah, I, I agree. Because when you start looking at energy infrastructure, you realize these guys are are definitely you know, in with each other. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so, so I don't, I don't, I, yeah, I'm just trying to show you this way. When you look at this one, I said, wait a minute here. The politics are probably a lot different than what you think they are. Yeah. There's what they show, but what they're really doing. This is what they're doing. Yeah, and for the audience, um, you know, when we put these graphics up, we realize they're kind of detailed and they're hard to see. But, hey, you can pause, when it gets to YouTube, you can pause it, get your magnifying glass out, and 
look in there as close as you need to. We're yeah. trying to give you clean, clean, clean graphics, but also give you the biggest picture possible. Well, all those pipelines are in red, and most of the features there are in blue. Yeah, and you really look close, and you realize, wow, there's a, there's a definitely a nest of energy infrastructure where these countries are definitely integrated. Yeah. So it'd be very difficult for India and China to basically say anything negative to Russia, considering what they're sharing. You know, it's a, it's a case of the Siamese twins, and they're sharing a lot of, a lot of. Uh, a lot of important things together. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, and that that new uh, agreement uh, with the new pipelines, the four hundred billion billion dollar project, thirty years, signed the second week of February in Beijing, which was the last time Vladimir Putin was uh, was in Beijing. And just so everybody knows, since twenty fourteen, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have had. 38 um, high-level visits where either Putin's in Beijing or Z is in Moscow. Wow. So these guys are pretty close. Okay. Next one, please. Okay. Saudi Arabia, Chinese yuan. Okay. So this was just on the hill. Well, I hate to tell everybody this, but this is actually nothing new for Saudi Arabia, right? And I'm going to show you the reason why, when I, when I show you this whole fun new financial system, this has been going on for a while. First of all, the process for integrating or selling uh, Saudi Arabia, selling oil to China actually started in 2017. Uh, China, Saudi Arabia has had accounts in the SIPs, the Chinese uh, financial system, which I'm going to show you since 2018, and has been selling oil to the Chinese since 2018. And those are, uh, they're selling it for what are called panda bonds or yon bonds. And I'll show you a little bit later on, but panda bonds are redeemable in gold. And it's on the Shanghai exchange. So if we can go to the next one, please. Yeah, if you wanna know why, the reason why is this thing right here. Um, the break-even price for Saudi Arabia to produce crude oil, Saudi Arabia and a couple other countries on here, Algeria, um, Shoot, I can't see the rest of it here. Uh, but the point being is a number of these countries have a pretty high break-even cost. So from 2014 to uh, 2020, when oil was $50 a barrel, we were paying for gasoline at two bucks. I understand the Saudis were going deeply into debt to sell us gas, sell us fuel at that price, okay? The country that was loaning the money to Saudi Arabia was China. Uh-huh. So Saudi Arabia is deeply in debt to the Chinese. Right. That's why they started selling the Chinese oil in bonds or panda bonds. Is that is that also one of the reasons why, you know, when when uh, President Biden is shopping around to other parts of the world to buy oil, the Saudis are like not interested because they actually have to borrow money and they're already deeply in debt to get their oil fields upping their production. Yeah. So they. Oh, it's worse than that. When I show you this new financial system and who's in it, you realize that. I mean, he's he's gone to Venezuela, he's gone to Iran, and I hate to tell you, but when I show you the links of this new financial system, you'll realize he's beating a dead horse. Yeah. I hate to okay. say that, but you're going to find that out here in a second. Uh, next one, please. This is from the Chinese government. Make sure I source it right. It's the Belt and Road Initiative. Now. If you look really closely, there's kind of a red squiggly line there in southern Iran, okay? That's that new pipeline called the Gorham Jossack Pipeline. It was finished last June. Remember, it was Chinese financing, and, the, and Gazprom built it. The Russians built it. 
Okay, that all leads down to southern Pakistan. The dark line, that's the, um, the freeway system, then the new railroad system, and some new pipeline systems. But down in southern Pakistan, a place called Ghadar City, the Saudis and China have built, are building a mega refinery. 50% Saudi, 50% China. They've been building it for the last two years. That's how deeply embedded Saudi Arabia is in building these giant, uh, giant oil refineries down in southern Pakistan. And after they get all this infrastructure built in this new mega, uh, uh, mega refinery, they're going to be shipping diesel, gasoline, oil fuels, whatever those refineries crank out, will be shipping it up into China. Therefore, they don't need, well, basically the big oil tankers in the Straits of Malacca. But when I went through this and I found out that Saudis were 50% in with this refinery with China and the fact that they started work on this thing two years ago. So, so let's capsulize this, this picture just a little bit because that, that image is not just pipelines, but it's pipelines very specifically for the, con the continental areas. Asia and and North. rail lines, freeways, yeah. and even yeah. shipping lanes. The one going across to Africa, even so. What the what the Chinese have been doing, and this isn't just for Europe and Africa, but all the way around South America and stuff, is they've been making investments in ports, rail, pipelines, so that they can control shipping lanes. Yeah, and like you say, they'll go into a country and they'll say. Hey, what you need is a mega port here, and the country will say, uh, "You know, we'd like to do that, but we can't afford it. We don't have enough money." And the Chinese go, "No problem. We can help you build that." And so they build it, and then when they can't pay off the loan, when the country can't pay off the loan, they go, "Well, you're just going to have to let us bring our navy here or do whatever we, you know, whatever they kind of leverage want. that." Oh yeah. So this this one belt one road initiative that China's been been pushing for probably at least ten years now. It's pretty much underway around the world. And that's how they're trying to exercise their dominance around the world. Well, one of the things I remember told, when I first came on your show, I told you that uh, you could take a train from Amsterdam and all the way to Beijing in 10 days, especially through that rail system. If I can get the picture back up here for a second. Get the, yeah, there we go. Okay, so they put together, it's called the Eurasian Economic Union. It's a free trade zone. The initial members are Russia, Kazakhstan, Belarus, Serbia, Armenia, Kyrgyzstan, China, and Vietnam, okay? And uh, they're going to be adding Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, Iraq, right, uh, to it, okay? And probably more likely India will be in there also. And uh, I'll show you the reason why. Can I get to the next one, please? Okay, this is the new banking system the Chinese came up with. It's called SIPS. It's a replacement for the SWIFT's banking system. So in Africa, there are 141 member banks in Africa. Uh, Europe, there are 156 banks. Uh, Asia's got 914 banks. Uh, 535 of them are in China. North America, there are 28 banks that have terminal access to the SIPS banking system. South America, 17 banks, and something called Oceana has 22 banks. Now, if you look really closely, you've got China, India, there's Saudi Arabia in there, Iran, Iraq, uh, Pakistan. They're all founding members of this new banking system. Uh, it was started in 2017. It, the, first, um, the, first, the, first, uh, the, the first financial transaction went across it 
was an oil futures contract, came out of the Shanghai oil market, March 26, 2018, it was with Iran. That's when Iran started selling oil to China and panda bonds. Can you relate this back to the SWIFT system and that being one of the sanctions that we leveraged against uh, Russia on the Ukraine thing? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go that to a second. When we did those sanctions on Russia, kicked them out of the SWIFT system, well, now all these all those commodities are going to be pushed over onto the new system. Can I go to the last page, please? Okay, there it is. Okay, so I'm at, so this here is from Kitco.com, but what it is, it's a country to country trade, and this is actually the uh, the exchange rate or called the forex exchange, and it actually passes through the gold market. The idea here is. A given amount of a currency is traded for one troy ounce of gold, which is 99.99% pure, which then you can trade that one troy ounce of gold for another currency. For example, American dollars, uh, according to this chart here, 1, 000, uh, to buy one troy ounce of gold, it requires $1,918 for one troy ounce of gold, which then can be used to trade one transable can be used to trade, for example, 144 uh, for rupees would be 144,993.8 rupees can, uh, if you trade your gold for rupees. So the point is, this is how you trade the world's uh, currencies and you go through the gold market. Now, one of the aspects of this is that India has the largest and oldest gold markets in the world. So when it comes to gold, there's no country that's as liquid with gold as India. Uh, in 2021, 25, 25% of the Russia-China's trade is on this new system. With Russia, uh, when Russia was kicked out of SWIFT, uh, basically they push all, they're pushing all those commodities onto the SIF system, and that'll be eventually they'll all be traded on the Shanghai Exchange, uh, and eventually all these commodities will more like in the future will be uh, traded in in Chinese yuan. Now today. If you're going to use this system to, let's say for, I'm going to give you an example. Let's say I have a Russian businessman who wants to sell some oil to somebody in India. Okay. And I'm going to explain how this is done in uh, the banking system down in, down in India. So the Russian businessman, he would have a bank account uh, in a, in a bank down in Mumbai, down in India. Okay. That'd be the first thing you'd have to do. Now the banking system there in India because right now we still have a lot of commodities denominated in dollars. So that computer system every hour will pull down the spot market price of the commodity in dollars. So oil be in barrels, copper be in metric tons of copper, corn be in bushels, bushels per This many bushels equals this many dollars, this many barrels equals this many dollars, et cetera. The next thing that the computer system every hour would pull down would be this chart right here, this exchange rate for gold, for all these different currencies. This is how you translate currencies into gold and gold back into the currencies. So how you do that trade is, first of all, you would say, let's say the businessman, he wants to sell 10,000 barrels of oil. So he'd take his 10,000 barrels of oil and that would be converted into what's the dollar value for those 10,000 barrels of oil. Then those dollars would be translated into gold. How much gold would those dollars buy? And then you would translate that gold into Indian rupees. So that's how many Indian rupees the 10,000 barrels of oil are worth. And then those Indian rupees will be deposited in that bank account of that Russian businessman. Now, if that Russian businessman wanted to convert his rupees into another currency, he would go through the SIF system, which also uses that same gold market. And basically you would trade your Indian rupees for gold in the SIPs 
trading system, the Chinese SIFS trading system, and trans that into uh, Russian rubles. And since the Russian ruble today, well, is being pegged uh, to gold, that makes the Russian ruble as good as gold. Uh, okay. But this whole system, notice uh, it actually doesn't, none of this flows through an American bank. Right. All this is done in the banking systems in Asia, basically between Russia, China, and India. And I've already described all these countries are already part of this new banking system. Yeah. And they've already been trading these commodities in that new banking system. So we got about 30 seconds left. So what is this hitting home? How hard of a smack is this between those countries and the United States currency-wise? Well, here, so there's a part of this that's talked about and part of it's not, okay? And part of it, it's going to require us to take kind of our ego out of this. And here's what it is. So it is known internationally that the Russians do uh, export 10 million barrels of oil every day. The additional piece to this is the Russians export an additional 10 million barrels in the form of diesel, gasoline, and fuel oil. So, so already processed. The truth is the Russians are exporting close to 20 million barrels of of it, equivalent to crude oil every day. That's 20% of the world's uh, oil market. And then you're throwing the natural gas. There's no way to displace this. Right. All right. So that paints the picture. If you, if you tick off Russia right now, they can hold back 20% of, not that they want to, because that hurts them too, to not well, sell any oil, but they can control it. But Stan, think of it. They've got more than half the world's population captive. I yeah. mean, between India and China and the Russia Asia, there's over three billion people. Yeah. They've got a captain, a captive customer base for their products. So that's a complete economic system that they basically have, can effectively keep us out of. It yeah. means that Russia and India can buy inexpensive fuel denominated in their own currencies or denominated in Chinese yuan that doesn't involve uh, dollars and our debt and all our political issues. It's it's completely. It's, it's, a, it's an economic system outside of our control. And Russia can set the price with whoever they're dealing with because they're, they're going to be dealing in gold to trade, but they yeah. can set the price different for India than they do for China yeah. than they do for, for South America or Europe. Yeah, because right. gold now is good as gold. All right. Well, Dan, thanks for that, that summary of what's going on in the energy slash economic world internationally. And I hope people get the picture that we've kind of pushed ourselves and Europe has pushed themselves into a little corner here. And uh, we're really going to have to start paying attention to how we do business and make sure we don't slide any, any further. So Dan, thanks for being on the show today. We went a little bit long, but thanks for being on. And I'm, I'm sure I'll have you back another couple of weeks and we'll, we'll hit this again and uh, try and, and open some eyes on some other international issues. So until next Tuesday, uh, Dan Goen and Stan the Energy Man signing off. Aloha. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii.
If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.